Well, after that, what do you say? Welcome to Parkview. We're so glad that you're here. Welcome to our campuses, Orland, Homer, New Lenox, all you guys watching online. I'm really glad that you're here. My name is Casey Tigert. I'm one of the pastors. And unless you were offended by that video, and if you were, then my name is Bill Brown, and you can send all comments to me. We're uh, closing this series called And Also With You about our relationship with the Catholic Church. And last week, Pastor Tim did a great job talking about the differences between us. Uh, we did learn some things in between last week and this week. Uh, one of them, some of you, uh, you mentioned to us that the response is no longer And Also With You in the Catholic Church. The response is And Also With Your Spirit. So we appreciate that. Thank you for the emails. Uh, also, some people left last week and said it was the most Catholic service they'd ever been to at Parkview because Tim had you stand up and sit down so many times. <laughs> Either way, um, this is a week we're going to talk about. If last week was the what is the difference between our two churches, between us and the Catholic Church, then I wanted to talk about the so what. So we know we're, there are things that are different about us, so what's the point? What's the big deal? What do we do with that next? And I just want you to know, this was a, a pretty difficult message for me to come up with uh, because the whole time I'm writing it, I'm thinking about conversations that I've had with some of you who have left the Roman Catholic Church and have started coming here. And I know that some of you, everybody's left for a different reason. Some of you left because you, you just didn't feel like it was relevant to your life and to your everyday stuff that you were going through. Uh, some of you left because you just thought it was a big show. A friend of mine who grew up Catholic called it the hokey pokey. You know, you stand up, you sit down, you turn around, the whole nine yards. Some of you left because you had questions about God, about faith, and someone told you, you don't ask questions, you just believe and you just keep going. Questions don't really belong here. And then some of you left because either you saw or experienced some kind of abuse. And that, that experience has left like an anger in you and a bitterness in you. And I have to agree with Tim when he said last week about Pope Francis is doing some amazing stuff. And the church is taking big steps to address sexual abuse. It's not enough yet, but it's a step in the right direction. But I know for some of you, that abuse actually robbed you of your faith. And so you've come here for whatever reason. And so I just want you to know, whatever baggage you carry, whatever guilt you carry, whatever anger or bitterness you carry, you are more than welcome at Parkview. But we do need to honestly talk about the differences between our two churches because... There are two words that we usually use to talk about the differences between Parkview and the Catholic Church. And those two words are religion and relationship. You've probably heard these two words mentioned here before. Uh, we talk a lot about relationship with God, but a lot of times we talk about religion and religious people. And I want to define this really quickly. Religion really just refers to the rites, rituals, and practices that we do as part of life in the church. It's the stuff. It's the actions and activities we do as part of the church. Every church has these things that they do. But then relationship is a way of connection with God based on his love and his grace. A way of connection with God based on his love and his grace. And I think we'd all agree that that is probably the best way to say, you know, the difference between us and the Catholic Church a lot of times is just how we talk about this relationship with God. Now, I have to tell you, I didn't grow up Catholic. My wife did, so I've learned quite a bit from her about that. But in my own spiritual life, two of my greatest influences, two of the people that helped me grow the most were two Catholic priests, a man named Henry Nouwen and a writer and monk named Thomas Merton. These two people, these two Catholic priests helped me to deepen in my relationship with God. And I know for some of you, you hear that and you're like, a priest helped you develop your relationship with God? I didn't get that. 
Some people did, but you may be saying, I'm here because I didn't get that from my priest. Instead, what I got was, here's the list of stuff you need to do, and really you need to do that because you've got to earn your way into God's good graces. You've got to do the stuff to make God feel okay about you so that one day he'll let you into heaven. That may be something that you gained. Some people haven't. Some people, there are people in the Roman Catholic Church growing in their relationship with God and deepening in it, and I believe that with my whole heart, but some of you did not get that. Instead, what you got was a big dose of religion, and when you get a big dose of religion, what you come away with is, I am never good enough. There's never enough that I can do to make God happy with me. But when I think about that and I think about God, I kind of think about him as a parent. When I think about my own parenting with my daughter, you know, she does stuff that she shouldn't do. My child is not perfect. I'll just admit that to you right now. She's not perfect. She does stuff she shouldn't do. So my wife and I, we sit down with her and we have the conversation and we talk about what happened that shouldn't have happened and what should have happened. And we, sometimes we take away the technology and we do all that stuff. But at no point in addressing a place where she's failed do we ever look at her and see her as a failure. See, some of the things that have happened in this religion versus relationship tension is we've gone from I messed up to I am messed up. It becomes an identity thing. I'll never be good enough, so I'm not good enough. But when I look at the story of the Bible, I see something entirely different, and it begins at the very beginning. In Genesis, God creates, and it says God saw everything that he made, and indeed, it was very good. Birds, bees, seas, trees, you and me. And he looks at it and he says, all that stuff is very good. And he never changes his mind about that. There's never a place in the Bible where he's like, yeah, not so good anymore. Uh, He never goes back on that. And so later on in the story, when Jesus comes because God's very good kids had lost their way, and he comes to bring them back into relationship with him, there's a moment at his baptism that's really important. It says this, And a voice from the heavens said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. God looks at Jesus in this act of baptism and says, This is my beloved kid. This is what that looks like. And he gives them this gift. He gives Jesus this gift of a name, beloved. And later on, people who follow Jesus would take that language on for themselves. They begin to talk about themselves as God's kids, as the beloved. In fact, in 1 John it says, so we see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. When you don't know that, when you don't know the story of the way that God looks at you, because when God looks at us, if you come from a deeply religious background, you may think that when God, looks it up, he's, when God looks at us, he says, that is a mess down there. That is a hot mess. They had better get on it and do some stuff to fix things. But the story the Bible tells us is when Jesus sees us, when God sees us, he looks at us and says, those are my beloved kids. I love them. I'm giddy about them. And they don't know that. And they lose track of that, and yes, they mess up, and yes, they fail, but that doesn't change who I see them as. They're my beloved kids, and nothing can take that away from them. God has always seen us that way. That's the story that Jesus tells. That's the story the Bible tells. That's the story that we use to begin this relationship with God. That's where it all starts. But I know that some of you have come from a deeply religious background. You see that and you're like, well, I like that relationship thing. That sounds great. Let's just toss this religion thing because we don't really need that. Let's just do the relationship thing. 
while I appreciate that and while I understand why you might want to do that, there's a problem with tossing the whole religion thing completely. Because as I was doing some research on the message, I came up with this idea. I was looking at the root of the word religion, and the, the word religion actually just means to bind oneself to something. In essence, it means a commitment. That's all religion is. Religion is just binding yourself to something, committing yourself to something. And the reason that matters is because as we talk about religion and relationship, we have to remember that every relationship has commitments. Every good, healthy, growing relationship has things that we commit ourselves to. For example, if you get married, you have to stop dating other people. I didn't know if you knew that or not. If you don't know that, Maybe now is just a time for you to understand. If you, if you get married, you have to stop dating other people. That's the commitment you make. If you have a child, you have to feed, clothe, and shelter that child. Raised by wolves is not an option. If you get into that college you've been applying for, you have to go to class. Or you have to find somebody to take good notes and go to class for you. That's what I did. Whatever it is, that's up to you. Every relationship has its commitments, has things that we commit ourselves to. And that brings into mind this tension. That puts a tension between religion and relationship. And it's a tension that has been there ever since Jesus was on earth. For example, one time, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field of grain on the Sabbath. Now, you don't get much more religious than the idea of Sabbath. Every seven days, everybody did no work, and they created these laws around what was work and what wasn't work. And if you kept the Sabbath, the people, the religious people at the time believe, if you keep that seventh day, we'll move closer to God. If you work on the seventh day, we move further away from God. And so Jesus and his disciples are walking through these fields, and these guys are starving. So they start plucking heads of grain as they walk through the fields, which would be considered harvesting, which was work. And so the religious people came up to Jesus and go, hey, you guys, they're not doing the thing. They're not doing the thing. You, remember, you know the thing, the Sabbath thing? They're not doing the thing. Why aren't you guys doing the thing? I thought you were faithful. I thought you loved God. Why aren't you guys doing the thing? And so Jesus gently but firmly takes them through this whole discussion about why the thing isn't the thing. And at the end of it, this is what he says. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Sabbath is a ridiculous idea and no one should ever do it. He doesn't put down the commitment. He doesn't put down the ritual, the habit. He says, you guys have lost the point. You've lost the point of what this whole thing is about. Sabbath is a gift. All of us could use a day, eight hours, where we completely unplug from productive stuff. We would be much better people, and we would probably love God more, and we'd probably love each other a whole lot more. Jesus says, you've forgotten the point of why this is there. This is a gift. This is for you. This is what God has given you so that you can become something more. Sabbath is not about you doing something so that God will tolerate you. Sabbath is about you stepping into something that you need. And this is a really important point. In this tension between religion and relationship, this is a really important point. All of the rituals, the point of the practices and the rites and the rituals, whether they're in the Roman Catholic Church or here that we have, they were never about changing God's mind about us. God already sees us as the beloved. He already loves us as we are. He knows we've messed up, and he's fine with that. We're going to work on that. It's never about changing God's mind about us. They're there to change our minds about God. They're there to help us understand that God has always loved us, has a bigger life in mind for us, and here's how you do that. 
In fact, the word that's used a lot of times in the Roman Catholic Church for some of the things they do is the word penance. And it comes from the word to repent, which literally means to change your mind. The whole point of the practices we do is to change our minds about who God is. And if you notice, if you read the stories of Jesus, you'll notice that the biggest problem he had with religious people, with their religious commitments, is that their hearts aren't being changed. They were so much more concerned with if you got the stuff done that they never stopped to think about why you got the stuff done. It wasn't, if you, it wasn't why you observed the Sabbath. It was did you do the stuff. They were experts in doing the stuff, but they had lost the point of why. And when you lose, when you lose the reason why we do any of this church stuff, not only do our hearts not change, the time in Jesus' time, these Pharisees were starting to go the opposite direction. They were starting to become, their religion was making them evil because they had lost the whole point of it. And that's a high possibility. In 1964, an event happened, and it was made into a movie that's an old movie, and I say old because now that makes me feel old, but an old movie called Mississippi Burning, and it's the story of three civil rights workers who were murdered in Mississippi. And this whole murder, this whole plan to kill these three people was plotted, carried out, and orchestrated by a man named Edgar Ray Killen. Ironic last name, I get that. Edgar Ray Killen. He had planned this whole thing. And the, the thing about this story that is so interesting to me is Edgar Ray Killen was a Baptist pastor. A guy who knew the Bible, a guy who was at church all the time, a guy who preached sermons and baptized people. That guy was the one who orchestrated a murder. Why? Because you can do all the religious stuff and show up on the right days and pray in the right ways and your heart can never change if you lose track of why you're doing it in the first place. When we start our conversations about relationship with God, we start with why you would want to do that in the first place. And so what I want to do today is just walk through some of the rites and rituals and practices we do and just talk about why they matter. So if we're not going to throw away religion, we've got to figure out what role it might play in helping us grow and helping us in this relationship with God. And there's a thought I want you to keep in mind as we go. The if of our rites and habits has to be connected to the why of our relationship with God. It is not about if you get it done or check the box. It's about why you would do it in the first place. And that changes our whole approach to it. Because again, why we do it is not to get God to love us or to tolerate us or to think we're okay. We do it because he already loves us and he has this big life in mind for us and this is how we step into it. So I just want to talk about some common things we do around church and why we do them. So first question is this, why do we pray? And you may be like, well, because it's church. That's what we do here. It's kind of our thing, right? But really, why do we pray? Why do we actually talk to God? Now, I know talking about this series, the difference between us and the Catholic Church, if you go back to your Catholic background, when we say prayer, you probably are drawn to the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, or if you're a Latin person, the Potter no stare. That's a great Scrabble word if you need one. Prayer is this thing where we talk to, and I, I was surprised when I was talking to my wife about this because we were talking about the Lord's Prayer because it's either used in the Mass or it's part of penance after confession. And I'm like, wait a minute, when you mess up, they make you pray the Lord's Prayer? What? This prayer seems like so much more of a gift than just a punishment because Jesus is one day praying and his disciples come to him and it says this, he was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now think about this. This is a moment where Jesus could have taught them any prayer. 
He could have taught them to say anything. He could have taught them to say, God, we are awful and horrible, and we hope that you like us and do not ram us into hell. Amen. He could have taught them any of that stuff, but instead he says, listen, guys, this is how you should pray, and that word is so important. He doesn't say, these are the exact words that you say, and if you say them in this order and in the King James Version, you will roll the tumblers, and the padlock to God's blessing will open up on you. He doesn't say this is what you should pray. He says this is how you should go about praying. And the reason he says that is because this prayer, the thing he teaches them, is one of the most explosive and powerful things that any of us could ever ask God for. I mean, let's break it down a little bit. The first line, our Father. You realize he starts by saying, just remind yourself you're already part of the family. That's the first step. Our Father, we are all God's kids. We are all already in. He has already brought us in. That's where we start. So when you begin the prayer, just say he's our Father, and then kingdom come, to know that God is not only good and great, but he's smart, (laughs) and he gets it much better than I do. And if God is calling the shots, life is going to be a whole lot better than if I'm calling the shots. Then it also says, give us this day. God gives us what we need. So when the check doesn't come through, when we get laid off, when we have to talk to our in-laws again, God says, I will give you the energy and the finances and the strength. I will give you the things that you need. And he also says, forgive us our debts because you and I will blow it. We will fail. We will mess up. It will happen. But the best part of the news isn't that God will one day, if we work hard enough, forgive us. It says forgiveness is already there. Just ask for it. It's yours. It belongs to you. You are part of this family. And as the Father, I give this to you if you just name it and ask for it. And then, I like these last two, lead us not into temptation because we can get there just fine. (laughs) I don't have a problem getting into temptation. I just need somebody to help me not go there. And when we get there, it never ends well. But I like the second part, deliver us from evil because see above. (laughs) Sometimes we find our way into temptation and we get into that dark, deep blackness and we need God to come and to rescue us. The reason this prayer is so powerful is that this prayer could organize any random Thursday in my life. I get up, I need to remember I'm a part of a bigger family. I need to remember that God is going to give me the stuff that I need, that with him calling the shots, it's so much better. That I'm going to walk towards temptation, and I know what that temptation is, so don't let me go there. But if I happen to go there, come and drag me out, because I know, I know that forgiveness is there for me too. I mean, what would a day look like if we just shaped it around this prayer? Because it's not if you say these things, it's not if you pray this way, it's why you would do it. Giving God a chance to shape everything we do in a day around this fantastic and powerful prayer. Now, I can't talk about prayer and compare us with the Catholic Church and not talk about confession. Confession is one of those things that carries a lot of baggage. I was talking to my wife about this and she was telling me the story about when she made her first confession. And and she was younger, I can't remember how old, 9 or 10 or something like that. And I said, so tell me about it. She goes, well, I knew it was coming and the day was coming up for me to do my first confession. And I was preparing for it and then a, a fear struck me. I said, what was it? And she said, I didn't have a sin to confess. And I was like, oh, well, okay, so you didn't do it? She goes, no, I still did it. I said, well, what did you do? She said, I made something up. And I'm like, hold on, give me a, wait a minute. You went, you went to confession to make, 
to make good, to do something to reconcile your sin, which you didn't have, but instead you made something up. You lied about sinning in a place where you're supposed to take care. How does that work exactly? Talk about the if killing the why. And she said, I just, I had to do it because I, I had to do it. It wasn't about why I did it. It was about if I did it. And she said, after that, I just thought, why can't I just go straight to God with this stuff when I need to? The scriptures tell us that we have this great high priest in Jesus who's gone through the heavens and we can approach him with boldness. We don't necessarily need to go through another person. But at the same time, confession can be a really good thing. In 1 John, it tells us this. It says, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know we'll fail. We know we'll blow it. And so one of the first steps in healing is diagnosing the sickness. Sometimes we just need to call that thing what it is and put it out there and get it out into the light, and then we can start dealing with it. Confession can be really healthy if we just name some of the junk that we've done in places where we've failed. And God is just to give us the forgiveness that we need. But you know, confessing to another person isn't a bad thing either. We don't have to. It says this in James, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. It, says you don't, it doesn't say you have to. It says this is a possibility. Now, you do need to be critically careful about your one another's that you're going to confess to. Like, don't go to your campus and find a random person in the foyer and go, they look safe. Hey, can I confess something to you? Don't do it on Facebook either. That's just a bad idea. But this could be a really powerful thing because we were not meant to do life on our own by ourselves. Sometimes we need someone that we can go, listen, this is where I'm failing. This is where I'm messing up. Can you help me? Can you help me deal with this? Confession can be a very healthy thing, but it's only healthy if we do it for a reason. It's only healthy if we keep in mind the why and not the if. What about the Bible? For a lot of you, if you grew up Catholic, the Bible was something that you watched somebody else deal with. And you came here and we're like, you should read the Bible. And you're like, what? No. Like, no, we don't do that. Like, I have a Bible and it's giant. It weighs 450 pounds. The pages are laced in gold. It sits on a stand in my house and it hasn't been touched since the last person dusted underneath it. The Bible is this thing over there. And we say, no, you need to, you need to jump into this thing. The power of the Bible is that the stories and the wisdom and the teaching in there can make us into who God had in mind for us to be from the beginning. There are people in the Bible that we can pattern our lives after. There are also people in the Bible we should never pattern our lives after. There's some bad examples in there. But this book is given to us so that we might step into it. And the point is not the book, okay? I write in my Bible. My Bible is covered with stickers and packing tape because if not, it would fall apart. The book itself is not what's holy. It's what's in it and who it points to that's holy, Tim talked about this last week in 2 Timothy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. This book points us to the God who guides us, teaches us, reminds us, makes us wise Helps us to understand the bigger picture of the stuff that we're involved in. And I love that image, inspired. It literally means God breathed. It's the same picture of when God created humanity, he breathed into it. This book is alive. And if we let it get into our lives, it will get in our kitchen and begin to throw stuff around. But it will also help us to put in order some of the stuff we're experiencing, some of the stuff we're struggling with. 
And so the Bible is not something we keep at a distance. It's something we dive into and we invite into our own lives. That's what we do with the Bible. Now, we have rooted around here, which is an opportunity for you if you are a little like, I feel like it's still kind of over there. Right now, rooted is going on, but we have another session of this experience that you can jump into and learn a little more about the Bible if you'd like to. And that's called rooted. That's coming up this spring. So those are two practices, prayer and the Bible, that are native to us, to Parkview. But let's talk a little bit about some Roman Catholic practices that you may have been a part of. One question is this, what about Lent? What about Lent? The 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter when we prepare for Jesus' death and resurrection. What do we do with Lent? I had this uh, experience. We were at a wedding, some people my wife worked with. And I was sitting at a table with a bunch of her coworkers, and there was this really strong Irish Catholic guy sitting at the table, and we were sharing stories because we're both Irish and uh, really appreciated that. And, and we were talking about the church, and he said, yeah, you know what, this year for Lent, I've decided I'm, uh, I'm giving up beer. And I was like, wow, Irish guy. That's strong. I was like, you realize, like, St. Patrick's Day is right in the middle of this thing, right? And so I said that out loud. I was like, wow, that's, that's a big sacrifice for you. That's, that's going to be really hard. And he looked at me and kind of confused, and he goes, oh, no, 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 I picked up scotch. It's going to be fine. We're just... <laughs> Talk about the if killing the why. <laughs> Most people know Lent as the time when you give something up on... You sacrifice something. And maybe you know it as you don't eat meat on Fridays. I have a good friend who's uh, an older Catholic, and he said, we never ate meat on Fridays. And I said, well, why do you do that? Why did you do that? And he said, ah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why we did that. We just never did. The reason that Roman Catholics don't eat meat on Fridays is because Friday was the day that Jesus was crucified. And it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. That's why you don't eat meat on Fridays. It's not if you skip it, it's why. You imagine Gorton's fish sticks. Reminding you of the death of Jesus. That's an amazing thing, right? The point is why. And so this process of Lent is just an opportunity for us to focus on why the sacrifice of Jesus makes such a big deal to us. To give up something to remind us of that. And so what that means is if you want to celebrate Lent with your Catholic family and give up meat on Fridays, that's perfectly fine. Just keep in mind why you might do it. However, if a good friend comes into town and wants to take you to Morton's, that's okay too. Because this isn't about if you do it, it's about why you would do it in the first place. So there's nothing wrong with the practice of Lent as long as we remember why we're doing it. The other question I get a lot around here is what about, what about the saints? What about the saints? Do we pray to them? Do we ask them to pray for us? We don't talk about saints praying for us, but there are a lot of interesting stories that can come out of that. One person sent us a story about they were trying, it's a, a married couple that was trying to sell their house in Wilmette and nothing was going really well. And so they decided because they were, you know, had the good Catholic roots, they took the little St. Joseph and they buried him in the ground facing the street upside down. But they had two big husky dogs. And so one Sunday they came back from church and the hole in which they put St. Joseph was empty. And they walked around the yard, and finally they found St. Joseph, and this is what he looked like. The dogs had bitten the saint's head off. Can you see how happy the dog looks about what's done? That was worth it. Totally worth it. This is not doing anything. So if you want to plant St. Joseph in your yard, if you can't sell your house, that's fine. If it doesn't sell, it's probably not because of God. It might be because of your, you priced it too high. Or you take that up with your realtor. I don't care. That's not what that's all about. It's not to get God to sell our house for us. It might be a practice that you want to do. But the point is, why? Why might you do that? 
And so what about the saints? What do we do with the saints? What's interesting to me in the Bible, the word saints is the word hagiosmos, and it's used 233 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. But every time it's used, it is always used to refer to everyday Christians. It's not a rock star elite status of Christian. It's every Christian is called hagiosmos, a saint, set apart. Because you're part of the family of God, you've been set apart for something different. So there's no such thing as a special class. We don't believe there's a special class of Christians. All of us, you're sitting next to saints. So you could say, well, should we ask saints to pray for us? Well, turn to the person next to you and ask, you to, ask them to pray for you. You've asked a saint to pray for you. So there's no reason to have, to have to do that. However, the lives of the saints can be very inspiring things. There are several saints for me that I just have a really deep, deep appreciation for. Because of things that they've presented, things that they've taught that have helped to grow my faith. There's one, St. Julian of Norwich is one, and she's given this prayer that I use. I repeat it to myself uh, sometimes in the morning that says, all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. That's beautiful. I mean, imagine taking that with you into a difficult meeting at work. All will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. Imagine parenting your teenager with this in mind. Everything's freaking out right now, but all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. The saints can give us these amazing, amazing things. Not only the prayers they give, but the stories of their lives. One of my favorites, because of my heritage, is also St. Patrick. A lot of people don't realize that he has more attributed to him than just giving us a day where we can pinch each other and drink a lot of beer. That's not necessarily what St. Patrick was all about. But one of the things he gave to us was also a prayer called the breastplate or the lorica. And it goes like this. It says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, and Christ above me. Christ on my right and Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. It's not if you say this prayer, and the question would be why? Why would you honor this saint's prayer? Imagine, imagine standing in line at Jewel, thinking Christ in front of me, Christ behind me. As I stand in the National Enquirers and the Time Magazines and the candy bars, Christ within me, Christ in front of me, Christ behind me. Imagine driving on the expressway, Christ to the right of me. Fair enough. I should probably pay attention to what I'm going to say to everybody else. If Christ is on the right of me, why might you do this? Because it organizes our life and it inspires us to have this deeper relationship with God. It's not about if you honor the saints. It's why you might do that in the first place. Last question, what about communion? In my conversations with people, communion is the place where most former Catholics have a ton of baggage and a lot of guilt. Because for you, when you left the church, you didn't just leave something with God behind. You, you left grandma and generations and your neighborhood and your parish behind. It felt like this huge break and so to take communion at another place feels like you're cheating on Jesus for some reason, or at least cheating on your family. And so I know that a lot of you have come from the Catholic background, and you've never taken communion here. And you've never, maybe because you don't feel like it's time. And listen, this is all about a conversation between you and God about when that moment is for you to take communion. 
But if your hesitancy is because you don't feel worthy, because you feel like you've broken something and God doesn't want you at his table, I want to tell you a story that might help with that. My wife's grandfather married young like most of the guys in his generation did. And like most guys in his generation, he went into the military and went off to training. And when he came back, he found that his young wife had left him a Dear John letter. And I want to apologize to all you guys named John. That's really unfair that like the breakup letter gets your name. I don't know why that happened. She had left him a letter and said she's leaving him and she disappeared. He never saw her again. Now, he was a Catholic man. She was a Catholic woman. And so later on, he met another good Catholic girl, and they got married. But the problem was he had never had that first marriage annulled. And if you know anything about Catholic teaching, that means that neither he nor she could take communion in the Catholic church again. And so for the rest of her life, for the next 40 years, his new wife sat in the very back of the sanctuary because she didn't feel like she was worthy enough to move any further forward. And she never took communion again for the next 40 years. She just didn't feel worthy to do it. That is the if killing the why. (laughs) She wasn't even there. She didn't even know his first wife. She wasn't even part of that. And somehow the table became a place where she wasn't welcome. If you feel like you're not worthy to come and take communion here, can I just remind you of something? When Jesus first gave this meal to his disciples, do you remember who was sitting at the table with him? (laughs) There was a guy named Judas who was about to sell him for less money than you would pay for an animal. There was a guy named Matthew who was a tax collector, the lowest rung of society. There were two guys named James and John that just wanted the power. There was a guy named Peter who did not know how to shut up. There was a guy named Simon the Zealot who was a religious terrorist who wanted to kill every Roman he could possibly find in the name of God. That was the group who received the first communion meal. So if you don't feel like you're worthy, I have to tell you, looking at that motley crew, I think we've all got a shot. (laughs) And in fact, because God looks at you and sees his beloved kid, he says, hey, there's a chair right here for you. It's always been here. You've always had a place. You're my beloved child, and I am giddy about you, and you belong here. This is not about whether you're worthy. I already think you're worthy. This is about are you willing to believe that's true? And so maybe today, maybe today is the first day that you take a step and say, all right, I'm going to take it on your word that this God that you talk about sees me as a beloved kid, and I'm going to step in and take communion here for the first time. Now, this is between you and God, so don't, I'm not forcing you. I'm just saying, if it's worthiness that you're worried about, this table isn't about worthiness. You're already welcome. It's about whether or not you believe that. Father, I'm grateful for an opportunity to sit at the table with you, to know that you see me as your beloved child and that nothing can take that. And I pray that my friends in this room would feel that same thing right now. I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church who are growing and deepening in their relationship with you. I'm grateful for the folks who are here who are doing the same. We're not here to fight with each other, God, but this is a table where we can come together and have different beliefs about what's going on here. But just to know that you have seen us and called us beloved. And we can live differently because of that. Thank you for these elements and what they remind us of every single week. 
that you love us and you give us everything that we need. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we dismiss today? Now may the God of St. Patrick and St. Julian, of Matthew, James, Judas, may the God who goes with us and calls us beloved no matter what we face, be with us in this week as we go, as we work, as we live, as we play, as we engage everything that we do, knowing it's not if we get it done, it's if we remember why we do it in the first place. Amen. Peace, y'all.